Look you with me earlier. Stick the redneck in, take the redneck out. Y'all, several years ago, uh, it's probably about 15 years now, I was training a group of high school students for a mission trip. And in that group, there was a girl, and she had been a leader among the high school students, well-respected among the teachers and all the students. And in the course of training, she came to me one day and said, you know, Grady, I've realized over the course of the last year that I never repented of my sin. I wasn't living the life that I told everybody that I was living. I've been living a lie. That's not enough. She continued to talk to me, and she told me that she had decided that the course of her life would not change. She decided that rather than telling people what had happened, rather than telling people that she had been living a lie, rather than telling people that she was wrong, she would rather, and these are her words, spend eternity in hell than face the shame of that. Y'all, that's tough. Father, we come before you, and, and Father, that, that story is, is so disturbing. Father, it's disturbing for this, for this girl, disturbing that a choice like that would and could be made. Father, it's disturbing as we are introspective to, to know that that was a possibility in, in our lives and so many people that we know. Father, as we have our heads bowed before you, we ask that, Father, we would be transparent with you. Father, that you would uh, touch our hearts. Father, we ask that we would be always true and honest with you. Father, we ask as we open your word that you would open our hearts. Father, that you would speak directly to us. Father, that it would be your message to us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that today you would be given glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So, y'all, I'm going to leave y'all with that story hanging for a little bit. Our text today comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples, Behold, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. 
And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will deny will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now our text begins with the phrase, in the meantime, or under these circumstances, or, or this is what was happening. And it tells us that there's a close connection, probably to the passage that was just immediately before this. Uh, and it's, what's going on is Jesus had an increasingly difficult relationship with the, the leaders of Israel, and the issues were beginning to come to a head, and Jesus knew that it was time to warn his disciples. Some months back, John David preached on, on that particular text. It was in Matthew 16, but I want to refresh your memory just a bit. What was this hypocrisy that Jesus was talking to about, and how does it relate to the passage that we just read? We see that Jesus had visited the home of a Pharisee for one of the two daily meals that the, that the Jews would have, and the Pharisees washed before eating, not primarily to cleanse themselves, but to wash away any defilement that had come from contact with Gentiles or other sinners. Jesus strongly criticized that and said that in washing their bodies, as in verse 39, they resembled a person who would wash the outside of a vessel that contained filth. And if God made the inside of the human... Surely he made the, if he made the outside of a human, surely he made the inside too, and that needs cleansing as well. The Pharisees had forgotten the great principles. They had grown to love the respect that the people gave them because of their religiosity. And as a result, they misled people, just like hidden graves are trampled and defiled because they're not marked. Whitewashed graves are filled with dry, dead bones. Webster defines hypocrisy of feigning to be what one is not or to believe what one does not, behavior that contradicts what one claims to believe or feel. We see from the previous scenes that the Pharisees and the, and the leaders were all insulted. And quite honestly, it's to their credit that they recognized they had been insulted. They weren't quite deluded enough not to know they hadn't just been insulted. But the result was that they were misleading the people. They showed a complete lack of integrity. It was form over substance. They chose to camouflage their sin while pretending to be righteous. They were honestly worshiping themselves. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to saying to the disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
So our text begins, and we see that in the recent past, Jesus had just had this confrontation with the religious leaders. And we find Jesus and the disciples surrounded by a big crowd, a really big crowd. Some translations say that there were many thousands. Others say myriads. And still another says an innumerable multitude of people. Big crowd. So many, in fact, that they were stepping on each other or even trampling each other. Have you ever been in a situation like that? When I was in high school, I was somewhere trying to get into something, and honestly, I don't remember any of the details of the situation, but I remember vividly the impression that it left on me. This crowd was so tightly packed that I couldn't raise my arms. If the crowd moved, you moved, or you got trampled. It was completely uncomfortable. And you know, even this year, in one instance, there was an incident where 90 people were crushed and over 300 were injured at a charitable distribution in Yemen. These things happen. So combine a very large crowd, and Jesus had just raised the ire of the, politi- or the religious leaders, I think we can feel the circumstances of what the disciples must have been feeling. And Jesus was speaking to the disciples. It says, he began to say to the disciples first. As would often happen, Jesus took time to explain to the disciples what he had just said. He explained it to them in terms that they could understand. And what he was saying that the example and the teaching of the Pharisees was penetrating society just like yeast does in bread. But Jesus' plans by this crowd and the Pharisees would not be distracted. Jesus was always in the moment, and his plan would come through. So what does he say to them? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I know that many of you are probably getting a little bit hungry right now because of the hour, and I'm going to apologize in advance for the illustration that I'm going to give you, but it works. Nancy, my wife, makes our bread. I don't mean she goes to the store and she buys this bread mix and then she stirs it together and flops it in a pan, throws it in the oven, and then bread comes out. No. She buys whole wheat kernels. She grinds them. Then she mixes all the ingredients together that she's chosen very carefully, and we have homemade bread. Now, in her recipe, she uses 12 cups of flour, five cups of water, three quarters of a cup of honey, and a cup of oil plus small amounts of the other ingredients. To that, she adds one and a half tablespoons of yeast. Just for reference and to add a little math into the equation here, there's 16 tablespoons in a cup. So by volume, the yeast in this bread mix is less than one half of 1% of all of the ingredients. So she stirs this together and lets it sit. When it starts off, 
it is the exact volume of all of the ingredients combined. But after a minute, after a while, not a minute, after a while, it's doubled in size by the inserting of less than one-half of one percent of something. The process is called fermentation, and it works as a chemical reaction, creating carbon dioxide in the bread, and the gases are released, and the bread expands. Fermentation is defined as the chemical breakdown of a substance by bacteria, yeast in this case, or leaven, and other microorganisms, typically involving effervescence and the giving off of heat. In the case we're speaking of in our text, hypocrisy is not a chemical reaction. It's a character reaction, but it has the same effect. It can infect the entire loaf. It doesn't take much, but it spreads. The hypocrisy was contagious within the followers of the religious leaders. So since we see here that Jesus is speaking primarily to his disciples, are we to believe that they're exhibiting the exact same kind of hypocrisy that he had just rebuked in the, in the Pharisees? Well, let's read it. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That doesn't sound like rebuke to me especially in light of the way that he had just spoken to the Pharisees. Read that, and all the woes, Jesus had rebuked them strongly. Well, if it's not rebuke, what is it? To me, it sounds like teaching. And what is he saying? But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. You know, in situations like this, it's easily understandable that they're a little bit anxious. Remember the situation. Jesus has just yelled at the, uh, the, their leaders. They're in a very large crowd. And human nature at this point would be to entice you to kind of fade into the background, maybe become a gray man and not be noticed. But Jesus is telling them that regardless of the amount of effort they're going to be found out. I believe here he's speaking directly to disciples and not in warning them about the same kind of hypocrisy that the Pharisees had exhibited, but by the Pharisees who had presented themselves as something better than what they really were, what he is suggesting is don't hide who you are, or more importantly, don't hide whose you are. I think that as we look at this, we can realize that when you're encircled by a crowd of thousands, people are already trampling other people. And you know, crowds sometimes turn hostile, and, and we know that riots have broken out, and people have been killed and hurt at sporting events and uh, charity distribution. It happens. And remember that these leaders that Jesus had just rebuked were holy in the eyes of many of these people, and they were well-respected. Jesus had just gored their ox. I believe that the Lord is taking this occasion to tell them about the things that are to come. Because if we look, they would soon be in Jerusalem. 
and there would be another hostile crowd. And that crowd would be demanding the release of Barabbas, a criminal. And that same crowd would be demanding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In fact, it was so much that the disciples all ran away, but Peter, and Peter we'll read about in Luke 22, 54 through 62. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting with them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, and looked intently at him and said, This man was one of them too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You're one of them too. And Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, Certainly this man was with him, for he is Galilean too. And Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told them, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went away and wept bitterly. Jesus wanted to prepare the disciples for a hostile crowd, for their rejection by the Jews that would come. As an angry crowd was setting around them, the Lord's teaching of the disciples was concerning their boldness in proclaiming the gospel in such circumstances as this. The crowds may have heard Jesus' words, but they were specifically for the disciples themselves. It was a time to prepare them for the persecution that was surely going to follow. And in this context, Jesus is telling his disciples that the road ahead is going to be hard and telling them how they should respond. He knows their temptations, and he warns them so they won't be caught off guard. Similar to the way that Mordecai had warned Queen Esther as she was to go before the king. The hypocrisy that was exhibited may have surprised many. But it didn't surprise God. He knew. If we look at what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus says, You are to be the salt and light of the earth. But if the salt has, lost taste, is, has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I believe that Jesus is telling them at this time that though they may be tempted, they may want to hide their beliefs or their alliances due to the circumstances, it would be something that they couldn't hide for long. He's telling them and he's telling us today that the consequences of denying whose we are are really significant. And it's really an exercise in futility. One commentator said, hypocrisy is conforming to the values 
and expectations of others. This characteristic is not immediately apparent, but is obvious with a little introspection. We are hypocritical because of some other person's or some other group's values. Hypocrisy is bowing to the idol of other people's values, which are not really our own. Hypocrites adjust and transform their appearance, what they think or what they feel. Hypocrisy is inconsistency. Hypocrisy is the incongruity between what appears and what is, between the way things seem and the way things are. The Pharisees appeared to be righteous on the outside, but in reality, they were wicked. And the disciples were apparently tempted, as, as we often are, to hide the fact that they belonged to Jesus. Hypocrisy is deliberate. Hypocrisy is deliberately appealing to what we, to be, is deliberately appearing to be what we are not. It's not accidental. It's purposeful. It's a charade. Hypocrisy is sin. It's lying to others and or to ourselves. And hypocrisy is a deliberate deception with either a positive or negative motivation. We're hypocritical either to get man's praise or to avoid man's persecution. I believe that that last point is showing the difference between the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the hypocrisy that the disciples would be tempted to. People are deliberately hypocritical, and they have a goal or an agenda in mind. The Pharisees' goal was positive. They wanted to be hypocritical so that they could receive the praises of men. But for the disciples, the motivation to be hypocritical would have been negative, to avoid the persecution of those who hated true righteousness, who would reject and crucify Jesus Christ the Messiah, and who would also persecute and kill many of them. While the Pharisees desired the praise of people by appearing to be righteous, the disciples were tempted to avoid the anger and violence of the crowd by not appearing to be followers of Jesus. Now, having learned how the disciples were tempted to be hypocritical, now we find that the remainder of our Lord's words here are more easily understood. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus gave the first reasons why hypocrisy is futile. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Trying to conceal the truth is something like trying to conceal a pregnancy. At some point, everybody is going to know. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25, The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, 
deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are not cannot be concealed. Some truths are evident immediately, some are not. I can walk into almost any room, and unless it's filled with NBA players, it's going to be hard for me to conceal the fact that I'm tall. Other things are not quite as easily shown. Some things are more easily concealed, but there are no secrets. It will all come out in the end, and hypocrisy is foolish because we are trying to avoid the inevitable. We've already discussed the positive and the negative approach. The, the motivation of the disciples was to conceal who they were, hide who they belonged to, hide what they believed, hide their convictions, hide their, their righteousness was from Christ alone and not self-righteous. But they are taught not to fear men, but to fear God. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you to whom, of whom to fear. The one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You know, our Lord starts this with my friends. That set the tone for the rest of the paragraph. While, this is a, a, while there is a legitimate sense in which we should fear God, what he's telling them is that this fear is different than the fear of men. Jesus' disciples that he had said elsewhere were his friends and not his slaves. We even spoke about that some months ago. The reason why the disciples would fear men and seek to conceal their true nature and faith in Christ was that they could indeed and would ultimately be killed for their faith, like many of the prophets had been. Jesus did not seek to minimize this. He's straight up front with them and tells them, that they might die, and indeed, most of them would. But he told them that physical death was not to be feared, but rather spiritual death was, spending eternity in hell. Man can only take away a person's physical life, but God is the one who has the power to throw men into hell. So the fear of man, which might persuade us to hide who we are, is trumped by God, who calls for honesty and boldness. While on the one hand, the disciples' fear should be of God, the greater emphasis of Jesus' words here call them to faith in God that the disciples should have. The one who is feared is also the one who has a deep love and intimate concern for his disciples. He knows and cares about the sparrows, which have little value to men. He also knows the hairs on the man's head. The disciples need not fear because he who cares for them shows great worth in them. Nothing will happen to the disciples or to us. Even death outside of God's infinite knowledge, his love and his care 
And since God has the keys to heaven and hell, death can only usher a disciple into his presence. We need not to fear men and try not to be a hypocrite. But there's still another reason why our Lord would tell his disciples to beware of the hypocrisy of silence and trying to appear to be what one is not. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. You know, at first blush, as we look at this, we might think that Jesus is warning his disciples that they could lose their salvation. That's not the case, however. There are several reasons that this can't be the case. Number one, Man's salvation is not based on his works, not based on his righteousness, but on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Number two, the scriptures consistently teach that man did not choose God, but, he, but God chose man, and that the one who is saved is eternally secure. Number three, in our text, there's a definitive change from the second person, you, to the third person, where he's talking about someone else, whoever, him, everyone. And four, the unpardonable sin, referred to in verse 10, is elsewhere clearly the sin an unbeliever commits. So it's therefore not the disciples who are in view here, but those who respond to their message of salvation. I believe that Jesus is saying just what the, the apostle said in the book of Acts in 2, 38, 41. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved, this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And the epistles teach in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. But what does that have to do with the disciples? Why would the Lord be teaching the disciples not to be hypocritical by referring to the requirements God has for salvation? Well, it's very simple. How can a disciple call upon men to publicly profess faith in Christ if they're hiding their own faith? They can't. You see, 
to trust Jesus back then was unpopular. It would make you unpopular with the religious leaders. It would make you unpopular with the, uh, your Jewish brothers and sisters. But it's not that much different today. How many of us are unpopular in our families because of our convictions and of our beliefs? We need to profess that Jesus is Christ, not hide from who we are, not hide from whose we are, and bear that proudly. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus didn't use the word if here. He didn't say if they haul you in. He says when. The disciples were assured that the Holy Spirit would give them the words that they needed to speak. <clears throat> Excuse me. How many times do we worry and fret over what we're going to say to someone as we try to tell them about our Jesus? When really... The Holy Spirit is at work in us, and we can count on him, not our words. It's not a performance. It's not our works. It's the outpouring of our heart for what Jesus has given us. So what do we learn from this passage? <clears throat> Hypocrisy is never good. When we see it in our lives, we need to look for the root causes. What is causing this to appear? Either we're trying to build ourselves up, or to hide who we really are. We're lying upward or we're lying downward. It's about self and it will have devastating effects on our witness. Hypocrisy is to be suspected. If hypocrisy was something about which Jesus warned his most intimate friends, then it's something that we should suspect. There's gonna be temptation to be hypocritical in our lives. Hypocrisy is woven into the very fabric of our lives and of our culture. All we have to do is look around. We should expect opposition. <clears throat> it may come in a much different form than it did for the disciples, but there will be opposition. People will challenge us because of our faith. <clears throat> and what we need is the leaven of the gospel, just as the leaven of hypocrisy will invade the Pharisees. The leaven of the gospel will invade us. It will permeate throughout our system. It will be a natural outpouring of who we are. We need to be people of the gospel. We're proclaiming it from his strength, not our own. It's the natural outcome. It's God's spirit not our own. So I've left you hanging a long time on the story of the girl. Ultimately, she was broken, and she did repent, and she recognized her need for salvation. I need to let you know that this happened <clears throat> before the training began, and certainly before the mission trip, or she couldn't have gone on the mission trip. But she was very effective on the mission trip, and it worked out well. However, she decided 
that even though she had now been saved, she still didn't want to share that with her parents because she was no longer ashamed of who she was, a liar proclaiming to be something she was not. Now she was ashamed of the process that was required to get her to salvation. I think we need to look at that. I think we need to look at the things that we're proud of. We need to look at the things that shame us. You know, things, it's been mentioned a couple of times up here, things are about to change. Y'all, routine is my friend. I love routine. It keeps me on track. Routine is about to be busted wide open. And there's going to be a temptation to get into a place of ease and comfort. But that's not the time for that. This is the time to show who we really are, to show who we're filled with and what we're made of. All about Jesus not about us. You see, the Pharisees were consumed with their own righteousness. And we know we don't have that outside of Jesus. Y'all, in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to look deeply within us and point out those things that are not of you. Father, we ask that any temptation we have to be something that we're not or or to hide who we really are, that you would shed a light on that and, Father, that we would walk away. Father, in the days to come, we don't know all the opportunities that you're going to give us. But, Father, we believe that you will prepare us for those opportunities. And, Father, that you will lead us in the way to go. Father, we ask for divine appointments with people that we don't know yet that we can share the glory of Christ. Father, we thank you. Father, we praise you and we love you. And it's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.